Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode of They Walk Among America, a serial criminal terrorizes a neighborhood and three brutal murders launch a statewide manhunt. But will the culprit be caught before he can kill again? Welcome to Episode 6 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and they walk among us. The award-winning true crime podcast. Townsend, Massachusetts. May 15th, 1970. Parents welcome a baby boy into their lives. What should have been a joyous occasion turned into the things that nightmares are made of. Not much is known of Daniel LaPlante's early childhood, but in the mid to late 1980s, he lived at 22 West Elm Street with his mother Elaine and stepfather David. While many children of the 80s enjoyed riding their huffy bicycles, trading baseball cards and watching MTV music videos, LaPlante's life was anything but typical. Daniel LaPlante was allegedly the victim of psychological and sexual abuse at the hands of his biological father. Family and friends noticed a drastic change in his behaviour after his head was shoved against a lamp during one altercation. A student of North Middlesex High School, LaPlante did not fit in. He lacked proper hygiene, a common repercussion for an abused child. In fact, his classmates would describe him as scary and weird, and when school authorities noticed changes, his schoolwork diminishing, his lack of social interaction, he was sent to see a psychiatrist where LaPlante would be diagnosed with a hyperactivity disorder. A stumbling block had been difficulty reading, Dyslexia was the cause, which partially explained some of Daniel LaPlante's struggles with his studies. Sadly, the psychiatrist's office was not the safe haven it should have been. The teenager was once again abused at the hands of a person that was supposed to care for him, 
the psychiatrist. The abhorrent actions by the person in a position of great trust lasted a year. In the fall of 1986, Daniel LaPlante would begin to test the boundaries of predatory behaviours. Once the victim, he now intended to turn the tables. For months, he would torment, stalk and terrorise an innocent family. It's a case that has garnered significant attention because of the unnerving and unbelievable events that transpired. The neighbouring town of Pepperell was about nine miles from Townsend along the banks of the Nashua River, a place that the Andrews family called home. Father Brian and daughters Annie and Jessica were going through tough times. Brian had lost his wife and the children had lost their mother just a few months prior, after she passed away following a battle with cancer. Long before the days of the internet, cell phones and even pages, the calls to the Andrews' home began innocently enough. LaPlante called to speak with the girls, telling them he got their number from a friend that attended the same high school as them. He regularly called, chatting to the sisters he had never met in person. They found him charming, so when he asked Annie on a date... She readily accepted. After all, why wouldn't she? Daniel LaPlante told her that he was an athletic, attractive young man with blonde hair. LaPlante was unhappy with who he was and lied about his appearance, so things did not go well as a consequence. The plan was to head to the local fair. Still, when Annie answered the door, she found Daniel LaPlante there at the threshold, portraying a stark contrast in appearance to what he described to her on the calls. He was a tall, slender, awkward teen with low self-esteem, greasy dark hair and an unkempt appearance. New to dating and still a teenager, Annie had built the caller up in her mind, and could not help but feel cheated. Not wanting to be rude, Annie decided to join LaPlante on their date as planned, but about an hour in she made an excuse to leave and headed home. For Annie, this was their first and only date. She did not plan on seeing him again. Still grieving over the tragic loss of their mother, Annie and Jessica decided to dabble in the macabre and conduct a seance to try and channel their mother's spirit to speak with her one more time. Ouija boards and home seances were a popular thing for teenagers at the time, and the girls, in their grief, thought it would be harmless to try. They lit candles in the darkened room and began to call out questions hoping for some sort of response and acknowledgement from their mother. The sound suddenly interrupted the silence in the room. The noise appeared to be coming from the walls. A firm knock, then another. At that moment, they questioned whether their mother was trying to communicate with them. Daniel LaPlante had tricked them once, 
but this time it was more sinister. The girls had no idea that Laplante had snuck into their home and was the one knocking on the walls in response. The knocking went on for two months because the girls got a response with the first seance. They were naturally motivated to do it again under the belief they were communicating with the parent they had lost. But soon the walls were knocking regardless of what they were doing. The Andrews girls were frightened, concerned they had summoned something which now haunted their home. The noises coming from the walls did not stop, and the strange occurrences got more disturbing when items in the household would move, including the furniture, when the family were not home. Daniel Laplante was going so far as to move items around the house when the occupants were out. He had free reign of the property. The sisters told their father of the eerie and frightful things going on in the house, but Brian Andrews just chalked it up to the girls struggling to process the death of their mother. How were any of the family supposed to know the teenager that Annie spent just one hour with was camped out in their walls? Daniel Laplante's stalking continued, and his menacing actions escalated when the Andrews family would get the fright of their life. There on the inside walls of the house, in some red liquid, which was later found to be ketchup, were the words, I'm in your room, come and find me, and marry me. The girls were unsurprisingly disturbed enough to leave the house that day the teenagers had to come home again as they had nowhere else to go. The crude lettering in the red liquid would reappear. This time the wall was scrawled with, I'm back. Find me if you can. The girls once again fled and ran to a neighbour's house to wait nervously until their father came home and he could investigate. He reluctantly went back to the house assuming that the girls were just acting out, or they had spooked themselves with their recent antics. Brian visited each room of the home, searching with lacklustre so his daughters would at least agree to come back into the house. He got to Annie's room and realised he was not alone. There are varying accounts of what happened next, as the tale has grown more ludicrous and unsettling with each retelling. But it is said, Brian Andrews saw someone stood before him. A young male, clothed in a familiar white dress, the one Brian's wife wore on their wedding day. A blonde wig skimmed his shoulders. A heavily made-up face peered back at Brian as he was processing what to do next. A scuffle ensued, but Daniel Laplante managed to wriggle free, escaping the house and avoiding the police officers that were on their way. What they found when searching the home was a cruel space behind a cupboard built into the wall of Annie's bedroom. It was there behind the walls of the house that Daniel Laplante had been all along as he stalked the Andrews girls. 
Law enforcement discovered that LaPlante had drilled a number of peepholes around the house so he could watch Annie in whatever room she was in. On December 8, 1986, Daniel LaPlante was arrested and charged with kidnapping and armed assault. The case was sent to juvenile court, but then transferred to the Air District Court, where his mother Elaine posted bail, $10,000 in cash. Daniel LaPlante was then sent to a juvenile facility, but released in October 1987. Upon his release, he went back to live with his mother at 22 West Elm Street, and that decision would change the lives of others forever. Daniel LaPlante was out of the juvenile facility and living at home with his mother and stepfather, but he did not settle. A few weeks later in the fall of 1987, LaPlante would commit burglary. On October 17th, between midnight and 2.15am, someone broke into the home of Raymond Pindle and his family at 38 West Elm Street. Two Ruger 22 caliber guns and their holsters were stolen, along with a large amount of cash. Three weeks later, after the Pindle home break-in, Daniel LaPlante's stepfather found a 22 Ruger and holster in Daniel LaPlante's dirty laundry bin. When confronted, LaPlante claimed he got the firearm about a year earlier. LaPlante's stepbrother and friend Michael Pulowski would later claim that they saw the unemployed Daniel LaPlante with a few hundred dollars in cash. While suspicion swirled around LaPlante being behind the break-in and robbery, he was never arrested or charged with the crime. The Pindle residence was just a three-minute walk south from Daniel LaPlante's home along West Elm Street. He had a reputation for stealing. All eyes fell on him for the crime. In November of 1987, there was another break-in in the neighbourhood. Between 11.30am and 3.30pm, someone broke into the Gustafsons' family home at 3 Saunders Road. The Gustafson residence was about half a mile west as the crow flies from LaPlante's home through a wooded area that separated the two houses. His spoils this time were a cordless telephone, two cable TV boxes, a cable TV remote control, and coins from a Liberty Silver Dollar collection. A relative knew it was LaPlante behind the break-in at the Gustafsons' house because he had concealed a box containing the cordless phone and a cable TV box in his brother's tool chest, saying he needed to leave it there so his parents wouldn't find out. LaPlante's brother also said he saw him with some silver coins similar to those missing, taken during the recent robbery, but the authorities were not notified of this at the time. Once again, LaPlante avoided capture. Around the same time, Daniel LaPlante approached both his brother and friend Michael Pulowski for bullets because he told them he wanted to, quote, make a larger bullet 
and sell it. At the end of November, Pulowski gave his friend a number of 22 caliber bullets from his own collection. For days, Laplante practiced loading and unloading the firearm he had stolen. Andrew and Priscilla Gustafson went to high school together at Quaybog Regional High School in West Brookfield, Massachusetts. But it would not be until Andrew was a sophomore and Priscilla was a freshman at Worcester State College that the two would start dating. Priscilla, the daughter of a congressional church pastor, married Andrew, and the two settled in Townsend in 1978. They had two children, Abigail, born December 8, 1979, and William, born November 12, 1982. The Gustafsons were active in their local church. Priscilla was a nursery school teacher and both of their children sang in the choir. Andrew was an up-and-coming attorney, one of only two for the 8,300 residents of Townsend. In December 1987, he was about to finalise a business deal that could change their lives forever. On December 1st, Andrew was about to close a big agreement where an associate was going to give him a stake in the ownership of a Gardner hotel in exchange for legal services. This kind of deal was cause for a celebration, so Andrew called home to ask Priscilla to get a babysitter for the night so the two could toast to future fortune. But unusually, no one answered the house phone. Andrew continued calling starting at 3.45pm. He would try a total of three times. Neither his wife nor anyone else picked up the phone. Andrew arrived at their home on Saunders Road at about 5.30pm. Priscilla's car was in the driveway. Andrew apprehensively went into the house. It was dark. There was nothing but silence. He called out for Priscilla, or they received no response. Andrew called a neighbour to see if she was there, but they had not seen her. Andrew went upstairs to the master bedroom, and it was there that he found the lifeless body of his 33-year-old wife, Priscilla. She was on the bed, covered in blood, a skin an ashen grey. He rushed downstairs to call 911. Andrew would later say he was too frightened to check the rest of the house. However, when investigators arrived, they found his five-year-old son William face down in the bathtub of the upstairs bathroom. Andrew's daughter Abigail, who was nearly eight years old, was also face down in the bathtub downstairs. Both children had been drowned, and Abigail suffered blunt force trauma to the head and compression to the neck. The triple homicide shook Townsend, Massachusetts to the core. Investigators knew they had to get to work. Then a sergeant, Irving M. Marshall, took the reins as lead investigator. 
he would conclude that Priscilla suffered two 22 calibre gunshot wounds at close range, fired through a pillow pressed against her head. An autopsy would reveal that she was violently sexually assaulted. At the time of her death, Priscilla was pregnant with the Gustafsons' third child. Three Saunders Road was a heartbreaking crime scene, but would yield an abundance of evidence left behind by the killer. Massachusetts Department of Public Safety chemist Carolyn LeClaire began the painstaking task of looking for clues the murderer left behind. She found semen near the corner of the bedspread that Priscilla's body was found on. A portion of a condom was discarded on the floor beside the bed. In the bedroom closet, the chemist found a knotted brown sock dampened with saliva and it was deduced that it had been used as a gag on Priscilla. Leclerc also found several items that were consistent with ligatures. A necktie, a sock, stockings, and pantyhose which had been knotted and cut. Detectives also noticed a nearly full bottle of beer that came from the Gustafsons' home refrigerator. In the kitchen garbage bin, several pieces of glossy paper looked to be torn from the pages of a pornographic magazine. While the crime scene technicians were working on the inside of the house, investigators knew they needed to expand their search for clues to find out how the perpetrator may have entered the home. The perimeter of the Gustafsons' house was scoured. Even Townsend Police Chief William May joined the hunt and found several sneaker prints in a flower bed along the front of the house. Following the trail, he noticed that the Gustafsons' family nameplate that hung on the outside of the property was missing, a possible trophy taken by the killer. The Gustafsons' home adjoined to a wooded area behind the property. Troopers searched through the dense trees on foot. Trooper Sean Baxter came upon a blue and white discarded flannel shirt with a pair of gloves wrapped inside, a pair of soaking wet socks and the missing Gustafson's family nameplate. Chemical testing showed the presence of GSR, or gunshot residue, on the gloves. This was the evidence they had been looking for. 
using the flannel shirt that investigators found. The canines followed a scent trail through the woods behind the Gustafsons' home to the middle of the LaPlante's backyard, less than half a mile away due west. The dogs came to about four feet from the house Daniel LaPlante resided in. Needless to say, investigators wanted to speak with the occupants of the home, particularly Daniel LaPlante considering his checkered past. Just a day after the terrible murders of three members of a young family, two state troopers interviewed LaPlante at the Townsend Public Library. He told them his alibi. He was home alone watching TV on the day Abigail William and Priscilla Gustafson were murdered. The troopers asked LaPlante what he had been wearing that day, and he said it was grey sweatpants, a football shirt and a pair of Converse sneakers. Not satisfied with Daniel LaPlante's recollection of his whereabouts on December 1st, I went back to question him for a second time. However, LaPlante was not so cooperative when investigators asked to speak with him again. He fled by jumping off the front porch. The manhunt was on. A statewide bolo, or be on the lookout, was issued for the arrest of Daniel LaPlante. The search consisted of helicopters, dogs and nearly 50 local and state officers who covered the land and air in hopes of capturing their suspect. Daniel LaPlante was on the run, and with nothing to lose, his crime spree continued. December 3rd, he broke into two homes in the Pepperell area, the same town where he stalked the Andrews family, seemingly a place he knew all too well. He stole a 32 caliber revolver. LaPlante tried to break into another property but was unsuccessful in the attempt. Then at the home of Pamela Makila in Pepperell, LaPlante ordered her at gunpoint to drive him to Fitchburg, Massachusetts, a 30-minute drive 16 miles south. During the journey, Pamela took a chance and jumped out of the van. LaPlante left her to flee while he continued the journey in her vehicle. LaPlante changed course after Pamela Makila had escaped and would have likely informed the police of his intended destination. Even so, the fugitive ran out of steam on his journey to Air, Massachusetts. LaPlante was hiding in a dumpster at an industrial park around 6.30 in the evening just 48 hours after the murders of Priscilla Gustafson and her two children. LaPlante was not taken into custody without incident. He resisted arrest and pleaded with two local police officers to take his life. Back at the station, officers began the process of booking in Daniel LaPlante and collecting photographs and fingerprints. When they conducted a body search, they found a loaded 32 revolver tucked away in the suspect's underwear and a 32 caliber bullet in his right sneaker. The question of how Daniel LaPlante killed the Gustafson family would soon be resolved by the investigation, but the why would be a more complicated question to answer. 
Over the course of a year in northeastern Massachusetts, the young man had robbed numerous homes, terrorized and stalked a grieving family, and violently and horrifically took the lives of three innocent people. While Daniel LaPlante was on the run, investigators were gathering evidence. The Gustafsons' murders occurred on December 1st, 1987, and aided by a search dog following the scent trail, officers found clothing in the woods. Search warrants were executed for the LaPlante residence obtained on December 2nd and then again on December 11th. The evidence against the suspect was staggering. In the LaPlante home, clothing was discovered in Daniel LaPlante's closet. Grey sweatpants, a grey thermal shirt with blue stripes, and a pair of socks. One was still wet. Stephen LaPlante said this was the clothing his brother wore on December 1st, the day of the murders. Having obtained blood samples from the plant as well, analysts determined that he was a Taipei secretor. The same status of the semen on the bedspread that Priscilla's body was found on. Fibres were matched from the flannel shirt discovered in the woods to those fibres found on the clothing worn by Daniel LaPlante on the day of the murders, on the socks found in his bedroom, on the belt found with the murder weapon, and in three places at the home. Fibres taken from the sock used to gag Priscilla also matched that of samples found on the grey shirt worn by LaPlante on the day of the murders. Ballistic testing showed the remaining bullets in LaPlante's possession were the same brand, calibre, class and casings as the one used to kill Priscilla Gustafson. Strands of Abigail's hair were discovered on Daniel LaPlante's socks. During the execution of the search warrant of the LaPlante's home, officers found the Gustafson's cordless telephone and cable box in the tool chest where LaPlante had hidden them away. His left thumbprint was unearthed on the cordless phone in two separate places. The shoe prints that the police chief discovered outside of the Gustafson's home were later identified as being made by a size 11 or 12 Converse sneaker, the same style as the ones LaPlante told investigators he was wearing on the day of the murders. A few months later, on April 7, 1988... Stephen LaPlante and Michael Palowski found the 22 caliber murder weapon in the glove compartment of an abandoned vehicle, a Jeep Cherokee, on the LaPlante property. Towns and Massachusetts had their man, and the investigation was one of the largest criminal cases the area had ever seen. The trial of Daniel LaPlante began in October of 1988. Although he was a minor at the time of the Gustafson murders, he would be tried as an adult. He underwent a rigorous psychological evaluation, but was found competent to stand trial. LaPlante's defence team would say that their client mistakenly believed his lover had threatened him with a gun, and that he snapped, but had no recollection of the killings other than comparing his state of mind to hallucinating and floating. 
the defence would try and sway the jury to another possible perpetrator and reverse the tables to insinuate that the actual trigger man was Daniel LaPlante's friend Michael Pulowski, the same friend that provided LaPlante with the 22 caliber ammunition. However, Pulowski's employment time cards would later reveal that he was in fact working at the time of the Gustafson killings. It was the prosecution's turn, and law enforcement painted a grim and horrifying picture of the events that transpired on December 1st, 1987. Court records stated that when, quote, Daniel heard Priscilla Gustafson and her five-year-old son William entering the house. He said that his first thought was to jump out of the window, but he decided not to. He confronted them with the gun, brought them to the bedroom, put William in the closet and tied Priscilla to the bed. Daniel said that after he tied Priscilla to the bed, his plan was to leave, but once again he decided not to. Instead, he made the decision to rape her. After raping her, he acknowledged that he could have left. Instead, he decided he would kill her. After he killed Priscilla, Daniel made the decision to take William into the bathroom and drown him. As he was leaving, he encountered seven-year-old Abigail. He lured her into the bathroom and made the decision to drown her as well. After fleeing the scene, Daniel went home, ate, and then attended his niece's birthday party as if nothing had happened. After the autopsies were conducted, the time of the killings was determined to be around 3.35pm. This approximation was corroborated by a neighbour who heard a girl screaming from the direction of the Gustafsons' home around the same time. Due to the intense media coverage and public outrage by the crimes committed by Daniel LaPlante, the jury would be pulled from the Springfield, Massachusetts area and sequestered in nearby Lull. The jury of 16 heard testimony for three weeks, while being shielded from the outside world as best as possible, which cost taxpayers over $70,000. After deliberations, a jury of his peers found Daniel LaPlante guilty of first-degree murder for the killings of Priscilla, Abigail and William Gustafson. The judge Robert Barton sentenced Daniel LaPlante to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Massachusetts does not have the death penalty but Judge Barton told the Lowell Sun in 2007 that, quote, I personally could pull the switch and asked if he would have sentenced Daniel LaPlante to death. For the murders of Priscilla, Abigail and William Gustafson, Daniel LaPlante would spend the rest of his life behind bars. But from 1988 through 2014, LaPlante attempted to sue the state and Department of Corrections multiple times for violation of his rights. He said the prison violated his religious right as he was a practicing Satanist, 
and needed materials in order to carry out satanic rituals, which the prison had denied him. In January 2004, U.S. District Court Judge Nancy Gertner rewarded LaPlante's civil attorney, Palmer and Dodge, nearly $100,000 in attorney's fees against the Board of Prisons for violating LaPlante's civil rights. The intervening years would see a dramatic change in the judicial system for juveniles. In 2005, the Supreme Court ended capital punishment for those who committed crimes before the age of 18. In 2012, a ruling was made that juveniles could not receive a life without parole sentence, even for murder. LaPlante was 17 at the time of the Gustafson murders. He would get a possible shot at freedom. In 2017, Daniel LaPlante, then 46 years old, applied for a reduced sentence saying he was remorseful for his actions. He wanted to serve his sentences concurrently to make him eligible for a parole hearing after 30 years, which would be at the end of 2017. The prosecution wanted three consecutive sentences, meaning he would not be eligible for another 15 years. LaPlante's attorney Merritt Schnipper told affiliate WBUR The primary question is, is 45 years too much to serve for a juvenile homicidal defendant before you're pushing up against the functional equivalent of a life without parole? Middlesex Superior Court Judge Helene Kazanjian heard testimony, and one in particular was a benchmark for the possible resentencing hearing. Dr Fabian Salah, a forensic psychologist, was tasked with interviewing LaPlante. Dr Salah would take the stand and describe LaPlante as having a, quote, severe form of a personality disorder with the hallmark being the disregard for the rights of others and the lack of remorse. And when describing the murders to the doctor, he showed an extraordinary lack of empathy. Based on Salah's testimony, the resentencing judge also found that the murders of the victims were a result of conduct disorder, child-onset type, rather than any adverse childhood experiences, learning disabilities or immaturity. With the respect of the characteristics of the defendant, the resentencing judge concluded that the evidence submitted at the hearing did not reflect that at the time of the murders he displayed the hallmark features of a juvenile, that is, immaturity, impetuosity and failure to appreciate risks and consequences. Rather, the judge found that the defendant acted deliberately and intentionally when committing these three distinct and brutal murders. In his defence, attorney Ryan Schiff painted a picture of a 180-degree change in LaPlante. Schiff said LaPlante had earned his high school equivalency diploma, tutored other inmates, completed college-level courses, and even assumed leadership roles in some prison groups lending to the notion that Daniel LaPlante was, quote, 
capable of making positive changes. Priscilla Gustafson's family spoke out at the thought of Daniel LaPlante potentially being released. Her sister Beth Williams had chilling words when interviewed by the local media. I liken him to a rabid dog that needs to be put down. He needs to stay in jail for the rest of his life. And there were four lives that he took, not three. She raped her again and then put the pillow over her head and shot her in front of little Billy. And then he took little Billy and he drowned him in the bathtub upstairs. Priscilla's brother, William Morgan, a reverend, would ultimately reveal in court that he forgives Daniel LaPlante for the murders of his sister, niece and nephew, but stressed that justice needed to be served. Our task is the, uh, to honour Priscilla and the children is to uh, you know, make sure that the people of uh, Massachusetts never have to face this man on the street. Surprisingly, Daniel LaPlante spoke in his own defence. But while he did not address any family or friends in the courtroom, he made the following statement to the judge. Words cannot fully capture what I have done. I murdered three innocent people. Because of me, a five-year-old boy will never turn six. There is a seven-year-old girl that will never turn eight. Because of me, a woman will never give birth to her third child. I robbed an unborn child of its first breath. A husband was never able again to give his family a I love you. I do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow, but I am truly sorry for the harm that I have caused. In the very essence of who I am, from the depth of my soul, I am sorry. In the end, Middlesex Superior Court Judge Helene Kassandian decided that LaPlante had not been rehabilitated before handing down the maximum of three consecutive life sentences with the opportunity for parole after 45 years from the date of his conviction, the year being 2032. Original murder trial judge Robert Barton now retired took part in an interview with Channel 25 News in Boston regarding the resentencing trial. If I had the power, I would have imposed the death penalty. I just uh, don't think that uh, he can ever be rehabilitated. He killed these two young little kids in separate bathrooms at separate times. And with a little girl, clumps of her hair were found in a bathtub. She fought for her life. And I thought that uh, there should be an exclamation point after the sentence, meaning this is a horrible, horrible case. After the murders of his wife and two children, Andrew Gustafson carried on with his life. He remarried a woman named Carol Seaver, whom he met at church meetings, and they adopted daughters Holly and Laura. Andrew also again focused his legal endeavours and became a child advocate for the state at one point representing children in front of the juvenile court system. Andrew Gustafson passed away in 2014, and on his deathbed he allegedly said of Daniel LaPlante, don't ever let him out, he should rot in prison. Upon the Gustafson family headstone is an engraving of a gospel from John chapter 1. 
it reads, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Daniel Laplante is currently in a medium security prison at MCI Norfolk in Massachusetts. This episode was researched and written by Kelly McClear and edited by Brad Maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.